Welcome back to the Archives Podcast. Before we take an end-of-year break from our second half series, we want to leave you with a rebroadcast of an episode from last season's audio documentary on the school, one that honors and celebrates the 909 West Armitage Avenue location. The school and the music store have had a home in that building for 50 years, as of 2018. With the episode you're about to hear, we only scratch the surface of the stories of all the people who have passed through that space, taught there, learned there, worked, and performed there. I hope you enjoy listening back to 60 Years of Folk, Part 3, Folk Clubs and All Night Parties. Folk music changed significantly over the 1960s, and so too did the Old Town School of Folk Music, even as it sought to preserve the traditional music that defined it from the start. This episode features stories from Ed Holstein, Stephen Wade, Jimmy Tomasello, and more from the school's second incarnation at 909 West Armitage, where Ray Tate took over leadership from the school's founders in the late 1960s. The first of the founders to leave was Frank Hamilton, and the school bade him farewell with an all-star concert of the teachers he'd trained to keep it all going. Here's co-founder Wynne Strachey in a recording from that night on April 15th, 1962. Well, tonight's concert is uh, called Farewell to Frank. I'm sure, with a very few exceptions, all of you know that this means a farewell to Frank Hamilton, the occasion being Frank's leaving Chicago to join the Weavers, which he will do in a very few days, and will be performing with them as early as some concerts in May, and from then on. Well, Frank was the center of the school's organization uh, back some five and almost five and a half years ago when, well, it was just about six years ago that Frank first appeared at the Gate of Horn and then subsequently started teaching around town and seeing that teaching in the home of Don Greening, it occurred to several of us, including Gert Solker and Don and myself and several others, that a school should be built around Frank. And that took place very painlessly, I must say. And I think it's conservative to say that several thousand people have been influenced directly by Frank's teaching in the last five and almost five and a half years. And I suspect that many of those people, most of you are those people who are here tonight. And the, uh, the program itself will have a very uh, unusual and nice quality, I think, because all of the performers on, with one exception, are people who have studied with Frank and also people who are now teaching at the Old Town School of Folk. So, Frank isn't here yet, but, uh... (laughs) There's something strangely similar, strangely familiar about that. But, as Frank is going away and the school is going to carry on because Frank is leaving a good part of himself here in Chicago, the, the, the information that he freely taught to all of his students, here at the school and at home. And so it's, it's quite reasonable for the program to go on without Frank, too, because we'll be having many more programs, but he'll be here later, I'm sure. 
Baby, when the sun goes down In the evening When the sun goes down Ain't it lonesome, ain't it lonesome Thank you, Frank. Good night. Refreshments and folk dancing in the next room. I'm Mike Dunbar, and I started. Uh, let's see, I started teaching at the school right out of college, and I'm, I should have written down the, the exact date, but it was uh, in the in the mid '70s. I think I taught at the school for seven or eight years but I was a student of the school when I was a teenager. My name's uh, Mark Dvorak, and uh, I've been on faculty here at the school for 30 years now, and, um, <laughs> and I'm sitting here with uh, uh, a great teacher, and, a, and a, even though uh, I was in his class a short time, a great influence from Nashville, Tennessee, to Mike Dunbar. What attracted you to the school? Did you hear about it? Uh, the your... cookies. Cookies attracted me to the school. Okay. <laughs> uh, a friend of mine and I, well, we were in high school together, and he said, you got to come down to this place. He said, I just, I just came down there. He says, he, I said, really, what's it like? He said, well, we'll get on the L. I lived on the south side, you know. Went to De La Salle High School, you know. So we lived on the south side, and, and uh, he said, well, we'll, we'll take the L. We, we get off there, and, and we just walk over. It's not very far away. He said, and uh, uh, they, they all they all play get together and play guitar, and uh, there's free coffee and cookies. I grew up that well. I was I was born on the far south side and grew up in, grew up in Bridgeport, but uh, I was orphaned at 16. My mother my mother died on a, on New Year's Eve, and I was listening to WFMT, oh. and uh, I had already been taking. Uh, classes at the Old Town School, and I was listening to Ray Tate and these people on the on on, on WFMT, and I got the word my mother died. Uh, so the school became my family. The school became my family. Ray Tate would became my older brother. Wow. You know, uh, Winstrocky was. Uh, I wasn't close to him, but he was a father figure. Yes, De- he a was. definite father figure. I, absolutely. For, you know, he was the he was the father who was. Always out in the field or something, you yeah, know. But, that's right. But you know, he was he, he was a father. He had figure. that presence. So, so I mean, uh, the, the, the reason I went in, the reason I, I went into music, went into went into music education was the old town school. I wanted to be a singer. When I told my mother, my mother was a was a tap dancer. Uh, she danced for the USO back in, in in around World War II. She stopped dancing because she had a, my father left. I, w- I was a, a, a single parent child before it was before it was cool, and uh, uh, so he, so you, he, he left. You, and, just and, you and, and your brother then? Yeah, just yeah. just my brother and I. But my brother, my brother at this point was, was in the army. He right. was in the army, right, right. so I didn't didn't see him for a few years. So uh, I told my mother, I said, you know, I, I want to be a musician, and she said, that's good, but you really need to you really need to find something because to to uh, you know 
to do because musician you'll you'll make money you won't make money because she always wanted to be a tap dancer yeah you know? she knew that she always wanted she and she played deal. piano she yeah. was she was very musical so uh, so when when Don Greening you know I was I was thinking well I'll be an English teacher you know I thought I'd be an English teacher because I used to listen to Bye Bye Birdie and I'd hear an English teacher an English teacher I guess I'll be an English teacher you know <clears throat> you know and uh, so when Don Greening said. You know, you really, you really ought to teach music. I thought, okay, great, and I thought, okay, great on many levels because I thought, now, now I got, now I'm, I, I painted myself into a corner. Yep. Whatever I do, it's going to be music. Yep, you that's know? right. So, that's the you know, school felt, was my was you know, my family. Yeah. The dusty broken wagon goes riding through the town, and all the little children they try to chase it down. Because they know the man inside will play his old banjo They recognize the wagon of the medicine show Of the medicine show So when I, <laughs> when, when, when I finished college... Uh, what did you study in college? Music education. Yes. Yeah. Oh. Vocal, vocal music. Mm -hmm. Vocal music. When I finished, Ray tapped me. He said... Why don't you come and teach at the school and teach music theory and, and you can teach some classes and so so mm -hmm. I did that. It makes sense to me that you studied music education. You were so at ease in front of this mob of people with different skills. Well, I, I remember some guy in class was uh, kind of challenging and a hard guy and and you just stood there and you said try this and then some guy like me who was a little quieter you'd come over and we'd have a little one-on-one -on -one yeah. and. And then you'd mess around over here, and and uh, it was just an impressive thing. And being personal, a, a lot of teaching I, I found is uh, it's really like therapy. <clears throat> Music is such a personal thing. The reason I say that is because it, it comes from your voice. It's your voice. Someone tell someone says you to you when you're younger, "Oh, you sound terrible." <laughs> And and you know you keep that with oh I, yes, right. I sound terrible that's an injury you keep that with you and uh, a lot of what I, what I would do especially when I was teaching voice uh, was was to get people to realize that that's their voice yes. and it's an instrument now that's treat right. it like an instrument now that's you got right. you got a fine guitar here but you don't know where the good tones are you know so find the good tones in your voice that ah. kind of, that kind of thing what are you most proud of as a teacher I, I am most proud of the the chorus at the old town school. Oh, I'm most proud of that. Bill Hansen said you ought to have you ought to have a chorus. He said you're, you know, voice teacher. Why don't you have a chorus? So I put together a chorus, and so many people got married out of that chorus. Wow. And uh, 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 including me. Uh-huh. <laughs> my, my wife was, was in the chorus. I met, I met her in the chorus. What, what kind of things did you do? And uh, well, I, I insisted that that. Everybody who wanted to sing had to be able to sing, whether they could sing or not. I didn't care. That's right. I didn't care. And I would, I would, I would, I work them into a group and a B group. I never said that, but but I would tell certain people when we would go out to perform, I'd say, "Now you sit and stand in the back and don't sing quite as loud." <laughs> and then we'd have people in the front that would sing, yeah. you know, for you know, and and we did we did Christmas carols and we we did all, all kinds of things. But it was it was so good for these people because we had so many people who were rejected from singing, not allowed to sing. That uh, uh, I, I thought, and I think that's what 
that's part. That's the, the the that's the the definition of folk music is music made by folk. It's not just songs that are made up by coal miners. It's it's people getting together and singing who who don't necessarily who aren't necessarily really singer great singers or 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 great players, but they love to do it. There it is, and that's important. Yeah, my name's Eddie Holstein, and uh, I'm a guitar teacher here at the Old Town School of Folk Music and a performer. Ed and his older brother, Fred, grew up in Chatham on Chicago's south side. Well, Fred was, you know, my uh, a mentor and, and brought me into music. I followed him wherever he went, you know, and... Um, I, uh, Fred was, uh, I was still living at home. He was starting to come out to Old Town and perform. He was still sort of living at home. He used to come out, uh, when I wake up in the morning to go to school, I had to go through his room. And there he was, asleep. You know, and I thought, coming home from a night in Old Town, playing clubs or hanging out, and I would look at him, he was asleep, and I thought, and I'm on my way to school, it's 7.30 in the morning, and I would think, boy, I want to do what he does. So he, he you know, and I followed him into Old Town. Bright is the morning and brisk is the weather. Steady the ways are the sweet second sea. Proudly the tall ship Fred got quit, and he got me the job at the Folklore Center. That was at 333 West North Avenue. It was connected to the school. 
the guy who ran it was a teacher by the name of John Carbo, who was like a father to my brother Fred and myself. And John Carbo was a wonderful guy. He was just, he was like a father to us, second father. You know, I started hanging around there and, and working there, coming up from South Shore. Even when they moved to Armitage, I always had a job there when I wanted one. I went to San Francisco, I came back, I got a job there. And I worked with our theme, and uh, he was assistant manager, and I was assistant to assistant. Well, in the late 50s, I started hanging around at the school because I was interested in the music. That's the voice of Art Theme from a 1992 phone interview with Paul Tyler. I had heard about the uh, Old Town School through the Hootenannies at the Gate of Horn and so forth. Uh, Johnny Carbo had a house band that was playing at the Gate of Horn. Roger McGuinn was part of that band, and then Guy Gilbert took his place, and later Fred Holstein took his place. It was a band called The Frets, and it never dawned on me that the songs I liked from listening to the W.L.S. barn dance were the same things that were being sung around the fledgling folk scene. But I started hanging around with the Old Town School, took a few lessons from Frank Hamilton when he's still was there right before he joined the Weavers. I never took another real lesson. I guess I was self-taught, just learned from people I met. I still can't read a note of music, but it was a great place to hang out and to hear music and to be influenced by the people that passed through there. There were always people stopping up to play at the second half that were just unbelievable. Peter Lafarge and Pete Seeger, of course, Odetta would stop up, Jack Elliott, whoever was in town. Let's see, I was the assistant manager of the Folklore Center with John Carpo and Freddie Holstein and Ed Holstein. And uh, I think I was there 65, 6, and 7. It was uh, a time uh, that was uh, pretty amazing to be around the school. And the Folklore Center was, of course, the retail outlet that supplied strings and picks and everything, and we built a recording studio there and made that two LP recording of every song in the school book, but there was only one verse of it. It was the most frustrating thing in the world to listen to. Every morning at 7 o'clock There were 20 terriers a-working on the rock And the boss comes along and he says keep still And come down heavy on the cast iron drill And drill ye terriers drill Drill ye terriers drill It's work all day for the sugar in your tay Down behind the railway And drill ye terriers drill And blast and fire Working with John Carbo at the Folklore Center was a great experience, and uh, his banjo was always around. So when John went home and I worked the night shift, I'd always pick up his banjo and uh, learn to play the thing. Once we had Grandpa Jones coming in for a concert, and, uh, oh, I think that was 66, and he, he showed up two hours early and walked into the Folklore Center, and I was sitting behind the counter at the desk, plunking away on the banjo. I'd learned the Pete Seeger strum and a little bit of frailing, and I couldn't get past a certain plateau. And he was early for the concert. He sat down with me for two hours, 
and showed me stuff on the banjo. And uh, that was the way I sort of learned at the school. There was people to be around with the Old Town School, and you could learn all kinds of things just by picking up bits and pieces here and there from people who were real mentor types. Being at the Folklore Center for three years meant I was at the school, and if somebody was good was upstairs, we were, well, on occasion, we'd just lock up and come upstairs and hear whoever was playing at the second half. So I was taking advantage of everything, but the school always was a gathering place for people who wanted to hear this music and learn where it came from. And Of course, Dawn was a big part of that. She was a mother to a lot of us. And uh, Wynne was a mentor of mine from the word go. There's uh, no way I can state in words how much they uh, influenced me back in that era. It was a, just a fun place to be hanging around, and uh, I liked what I was into by being around the school, and I guess I stayed there. Some people moved on, went to different forms of music, but I always loved the ballads and the story songs. And way upon the Northland, upon the borderline, a great commercial city, Chicago, you will find. Her men are all like Abelard. Her women, they're like Heloise. All honest, virtuous people, cause they come from Illinois. So move your family westward, bring all your girls and boys, and rise to wealth and honor in the state of Illinois. The school almost went out of business in 68. Dawn had a good idea to move over to uh, Armitage, and we didn't even know where that was. Our whole world was in Old Town. You know, Ray Tate, uh, Ray was a great personality and a wonderful guy. I, I liked Ray a lot, and uh, he was there for a long time. And I was friends with Ray socially, too, and so was Freddie. And he would always get us gigs, and Wynn was around uh, every once in a while when he was in town. So we had a nice little family scene there. I came to the Old Town School, and Ray said, how did you find us? And I said, I, I read a bumper sticker in Des Moines Hour. He says, I'm going to I'm going to print those up again. I'm going to have those. Oh, yeah, they were all over town. We, were all, we all had them. Yeah. I am Louise DiMichelli Matran. I was known as Louise DiMichelli then. My name is Judy Hoff. We were at the Old Town School together at the same time in the 70s. She was teaching. I was at the desk. I taught later. So were you at the desk in 73? I was there as a student for quite a while and came back. That's right. I came back as a teacher in the 70s. But earlier, um, I, was at, I was at the desk and uh, had wonderful times there. Oh, you held it all together. I worked at the desk, too, some days. I just kind of took over you? when you right. took a break or when somebody was right. there. It was, right. it was loose. I mean, if we, if we weren't teaching and somebody came in, we would handle the desk. So I came in, and I was taking... They put me in advanced guitar class, and I, sa- I remember the first night I was in there, Ray Tate was in there, and I, I mm-hmm. sat down in the class, and Ray is teaching, and he's teaching with a flat pick, and I'm like, what is that thing, <laughs> the flat pick? Exactly. I had already bought finger picks, and he was talking to us, and he was noodling. You know, Ray would... Mm-hmm. I had never seen that. 
now I realize how naive I was, you know, I was studying classical music in Des Moines. So he was my biggest influence, I think, Ray. Everybody was. I learned from everyone. Mm-hmm. I learned from Mike Dunbar a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned from Mick Scott, who wasn't on the faculty, but he was hanging out all yep. the time. Yeah. Um, and I remember, well, and Corey taught me my first strumming. <laughs> so here's a story about the strumming. I, um, I was finger-picking everything, and Ray said, you have to teach. Um, and so my second year in Chicago, I prepared to be a teacher, and I came in the first night, and I, I was talking to people, and I said, well, what, what exactly am I going to teach? I know I have to teach the beginning chords, but what do they do with their right hand? And so they said, go talk to Corey. Corey, who's the janitor, who <laughs> was playing all the time. Everybody played. So, right. Corey, what was Corey's last name? Camilleri. Camilleri is a fellow Italian. I said, what do they do? And he says, you know, you take your thumb and you, you pluck the bass string and then you strum underneath it and then you pluck the other bass string, boom, chunk, boom, chunk, mm-hmm. basically. And so I said, oh, okay, I can do that. And I went in and taught it. But I didn't know what to do and nobody had really told me. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's not, not that way They just said, oh, now. well, she has a degree. She'll, she'll fall right yeah, into this. Right. And of course she, you did. I started playing out when I started teaching. And so everybody mm-hmm. around town... Marty Pfeiffer, of course, Dunbar. Mm-hmm. And I remember the first time I got up on stage when, after Ray had asked me to come on staff, I went to Orphans. And Ray and everybody, Mashkish, everybody was up on stage, uh, Bill. And um, I walked in and I had to play Make Me a Pallet on Your Floor. Mm-hmm. And I walked in and Ray says, you're nervous? And I said, I'm like freaking out. So he says, drink this. And he hands me a little shot glass <laughs> of anise, right? Oh uh, my right, God. and I drank it down. It was so good. tasted like licorice. Oh, yeah. And the liqueur. And, I love that And stuff. I drank that, and I felt a lot calmer. And then he said, just sip this the rest of the night. He gave me all kinds of little cues. <laughs> he was, he was <laughs> one of the nicest, coolest things he ever did for me. Um, I hadn't been there very long. This is back in 65 or something. And he wanted to form a little group that would go out and just play kind of for free, you know, or old folks' homes or little, you know, hospitals, whatever. And we were like, yes, that's that's a cool idea. So um, I, I didn't really play. And we had, you know, we, I mean, Bill was part of that and, and some other people. And so he says, okay, we got a banjo, we got a guitar, we got this, we got that. And he says, um, and he's holding the stand-up bass. And he says, he wants to play the bass. I didn't have the guts to say, I do. And he said, Judy? I said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the Old Town Singers were born, and round and round we went in Norm Cantor's Volkswagen convertible sometimes, getting hopelessly lost. Um, and when was that? It was like 65, 66. Yeah. Well, Ray did, Ray did a lot of stuff for us. He, he was, really he did. He plugged he, he was everybody putting, in. He was putting uh, opportunities in front of people right and left. He was so good at that. He really was. Another thing there, of course, I want to bring up is those all-night parties, which were so much fun. They were fundraisers. And uh, you probably performed at them, the right? All-night parties. Yeah, the all-night oh parties. Oh, my God. I had to work them. So, but that, but that, but it was, it was great. But everybody in town who was playing, you know, another gig would come in between gigs or after theirs were over, and they would come in and play for free at the school. And, and uh, we had these monstrous trough-like tubs. I guess we got some sort of a license to sell beer for the night. And so these big t- tubs were full of beer, and Corey's in the back with his... Um, big coffee pot full of uh, mulled cider with cinnamon sticks in it. Yeah. Every time I smell that, I mean, I, 
I, I'm, I'm drawn back to that, you know, those, those all-night parties. They were great. They, they did. They went on till dawn. They were fantastic. Yeah, they I were. loved them. They were great. And that whole thing about the second half was invaluable. I don't think yeah. anybody knows how important it was. It was like me discovering not only the second half, but going to the Bulls or the Azteca or something. Afterwards, you make connections, you make friends that you would never have made otherwise. So hundreds, thousands of, of, of friends and connections were made um, socially because of that second half business. Yeah. Yeah. It, it wasn't an isolated experience. And the school met every Thursday night at a place called the Saddle Club, which was a lot of fun, right down the street from the school. And it was a beer and shot joint. That was like a neighborhood joint. And then, uh, except on Thursday, all those people from the school. Were you there were you there on the last night when Saddle Club closed? Absolutely. So we were both Dick there. Dick was there. And, oh, my and, God. And, and, uh, they maced us. Uh, they, they maced us. Well, <laughs> Dick K. was not amused at being ma- you I know, wasn't maced. I was either. Yeah, they took away the liquor lessons. They lost their lessons that night at midnight. And they said, okay, everybody out. We were all so mm, up in wine. We were up in wine. <laughs> we were very much up in wine. <laughs> and finally, the cops just lost their good humor and thought, okay, let's let's give all these hippies, you know, something to, you know, make noise about. So they opened their mace and, uh, oh, yeah. So the, the story about the Saddle Club was I got really mad, you know, and you can't see me. I'm in a recording, but I'm 5'3". I'm a, not a big person. And I went up to one of the cops and I just slugged him in the chest because I was really mad at him. And Ray, I felt myself being lifted up and carried outside and put on the sidewalk. And that was Ray behind me going, don't you ever slug a cop. Don't you ever do that again. Well, you, must have you, really been up, you must have really been up in wine. I was just so mad at him. How could he close the precious saddle club? I know. There was a dead period after folk rock came in. And then we had our little scene here, in the, uh, starting in the late 60s and going through the 70s with Steve, my brother Fred, who really was a, this, the foundation of the whole uh, uh, folk scene because he kept it going when people abandoned and went on to do folk rock and stuff. They had different, I don't mean in a judgmental way, they had different interests. He he was uh, Fred was a very forward-thinking guy. He was very attuned to uh, great music. He had great taste. The terrific performer, great singer. When John Prine wrote a song, he ran over to Fred's house and f- recorded it for Fred. This is a song for all my good friends who shared up their time, some good and some bad. We drank in the kitchen and held no competition, each knowing the other was a good friend to have. So this is a song for all the good people, all the good people who touched out my And so in the 70s with Earl of Old Town, and, but not only the Earl of Old Town, and uh, that was like our home, but there was also Orphans by Danny Johnston, 
and uh, there was just all these little clubs uh, opening up because there was nothing going on in the rest of the country. I just came back from San Francisco in 68, and you couldn't find a folk singer. Folk music was considered almost passe. It was folk rock. and But uh, our little scene was different, and uh, uh, Earl and, uh, became very close to us. We were like, uh, he was our mentor, and uh, Errol Woltown, Second City, was across the street. And in the um, uh, in, during intermissions, we used to go across the street and watch John Belushi and Joe Flaherty and Barbara Morgan and Brian Doyle Murray do their thing in front of 30 people. So it's quite exciting, uh, those those late 60s, early 70s years around Old Town. Earl started with folk music in 66 when people were running away from it. And Fred was one of the performers, uh, the mainstay performers, and there was Ginny Clemens, who also was associated with the school, and Terry Collier, Steve Goodman was a young man, came by and started playing there. John, uh, Elio Haynes, Jeremiah, Bill Quaitman. I'm, mis- I'm leaving some, Joe Mapes, I'm leaving some people out. What was interesting about our scene, nobody sounded the same. It always sounded different. Bonnie Kolag wrote great songs. Actually, Bonnie was responsible for taking the Earl of Old Town, which was a difficult play, place to play a lot of times, and turning it, when she played there, more into a listening room because she started attracting a lot of people. She was the biggest star. And she started doing some of my songs that I had written, and so I, I started performing, opening up for her. Drop down, Mama, let your poor daddy see got something you've been uh, keeping it from me well my mama don't allow me to mess around with you late at night she said son you're gonna grow tired some woman might not Big city women, they'll sure make you tired Got a handful of gimme and a mouthful of much oblige Yeah, my mama, she don't allow me to mess around late at night She said, son, you're gonna grow tired Some woman, she might not Performers were coming here from other parts of the country. Wasn't much in New York going on anymore. 73, CBS did a, did a thing on the Chicago folk scene in Chicago, and they, they opened up on national news. You know, people think folk music in Chicago is dead, but not according to the people in Chicago. And they, they, did, they went to the school, and they went to about a dozen clubs and interviewed John and Steve. There was a lot of national attention towards what we were doing here. Back in 1899, when everybody sang old Lang Syne, a hundred years was a long, long time for every boy and girl. But now there's only one thing that I'd like to know. It's where did the 20th century go? I'd swear it was here just a minute ago All over this world And now the 20th century is almost over Almost over, almost over 
20th century is almost over all over this world all over this world all over this world that 20th century is almost over you don't have what steve goodman has it's like pc you know there's not only one not two you only get one steve goodman we were about the same age. He was a year younger than me. Uh, I remember seeing him the first night, 1966, at the Royal Old Town. And he was doing a lot of Kingston Trio stuff, playing the guitar furiously. And uh, we became friends. And then he started writing. On six, he got sick. We didn't see him for a while. And then Bonnie saw him in New York. She visited him in the hospital, 69. She said, you know, Steve wrote a really wonderful song called for his brother, David's song, just gorgeous, you know. You know, it was kind of a, you know, a song about him getting leukemia, but it was kind of a sad song, but a very powerful song. But what was delightful about him is I think he, he'd rather be on stage anywhere else, you know, which could be a little annoying sometimes. We tried to go out one time just to go see a movie and for dinner. And I know he, he wanted just to go somewhere and play guitar. You know, when he was sick and when he was doing chemo, there were times where he was okay. He was in remission for several years. But when it wasn't, it, he told me something about it. When he got on stage, it was all gone. The nausea was gone. You know, today he, he might have had even more years, but at the, he, he kind of caught... I know it's funny to say he caught a break. Because it used to be leukemia was a death sentence. You know, six months you're gone. But he made the most of it. And he was a great entertainer. And he was one of the most, uh, you hear this a lot about people, but this truly was him. He was the most generous guy. Um, and without making a thing out of it, you know. I mean, he just, if he had it, he gave it away you know, to other people, and it was heartfelt. He was always excited about uh, what other performers were doing. One of those performers was Steve Goodman's friend, John Prine. John created word of mouth right away. He played at the fifth peg across the street from the school in Armitage, and, and he got write-ups right away. And John had been in the Army. I didn't know John before. I knew Dave Prine, who taught here. And I went to Steve and I said, I, I, this John Prine, man, he's got these songs. So he came the next night, saw him, and they became friends. And and John spent, you know, a year working Earls and uh, mostly uh, the fifth peg. He was there like the resident. But within a year, he had some offers from people. What Steve was able to do was really, Steve opened up for Chris Christopherson, and Chris just loved him. And they were talking about doing some stuff, getting him help, getting him a record contract. He said, "You want to? I'm going to take you to some, see some guy that you won't believe." That night, they went to the Roval Town and saw John Prine. He took him to see John. Wanda had a baby in 1951. The father was a stranger. A stranger was the same. Call that child James Lewis. Call these rooms a home. Changing all them diapers. Polish all that.
I got a call from the store okay. at the Old Town School, and they said, hey, would you like to, a little part-time job? Because the woman there, uh, you know, took to me nicely, and she was a lovely lady. Her name was Emmy Rivez. My name is uh, Jimmy Tomasello. Hi, my name is Bill Bricky. Hey there. <laughs> What's up, man? <laughs> the real introduction to the Old Town School after taking a few lessons with uh, Johnny Long, I did a, a month of uh, volunteering. At the Old Town School. Yeah, as part of our senior project, you, you know, pick a place to, uh, to go and, you know, give your time. Mm-hmm. So I did that and sat at the desk with uh, Gail Forsberg and uh, Eddie Holstein. I used to go get them coffee. And, uh, and we're at 909 West Armitage. We're at 909 about. prior to any uh, renovation or anything like that. And this is the, so it's called the Albany. The Old Town Folklore Center was the store, and it's where the current desks and bathrooms are now. John Prine and uh, Bill Quaitman played at a place called the Fifth Peg, which I was, a, which is now some coffee place, kitty corner from the school on. Uh, on Armitage? On Armitage, yeah. By this time, I think I was living uh, at 907 West Armitage. The school owned that building. And that they rented it out. So there were like four apartments. Dodie Colick, this is probably another name that may have popped up in some of the history of the Old Town School, mm-hmm. was in the back apartment on the second floor. And then uh, Mike Dunbar and uh, Rich Clark lived there for a while. And then um, Levitt and I lived uh, together together for a long time, Steve Levitt and I. I mean, every, everybody knew everybody. It was like, you know, you'd, you'd walk through the office, you'd know the names of the people who worked there. All the t- teachers were, like, you know, together all the time, you know. It, it just sort of grew exponentially then, but it, it was maintaining an intimacy. I was a little boy, and I walked by, I'm from Chicago, and I walked by the original location of the Old Town School on North Avenue, and I just remember it was late in the afternoon because they had those sort of yellow film-like curtains down for the sun, to block the sun. I don't think they were green. I think they were yellow or amber-colored, and I remember seeing a guitar behind it, just sort of a lone guitar in in the window, as it were, but being protected from being baking. That's musician and historian Stephen Wade from a StoryCorps conversation with Old Town School teaching artist Matt Brown, recorded this past spring. And I was fascinated because I was already, you know, in in the thrall of this music. Because the associations of folk music at that time, so if I'm six or seven, the folk boom that's ignited by the Kingston Trio was going on, that wasn't the music I was after. So I was after something... um, of a different quality, which is, for me, was first present through Chicago blues, rhythm and blues music. Uh, and so, I, and I remember feeling then kind of a, ch- almost like a choice. Well, that folk music, that's that sort of, I thought of it as sort of more um, sophisticated or uptown or frilly or, or happy. It wasn't a broad definition of folk music. It was rather a commercial definition of folk, because that, that was what was being heard throughout the radio as folk music. 
So that was my first encounter with the old town school was to sort of spurn it. But I got older, and what happened is, is I started playing the banjo, and there was a very famous primer called How to Play the Five-String Banjo by Pete Seeger, and on the front page of it, it said, Special thanks and acknowledgement go to artist and banjo picker of Chicago, Fleming Brown. And he had illustrated some of the pictures. Then it occurred to me, well, maybe that's, I don't know, maybe Old Town School has anything to do with this. So at that time, they had moved to 911 West Armitage, or 909. The school is in one and the store was in the other. I went over there and I asked Evelyn Brightman, that was the lady behind the counter, I'm at the front desk, and I said, do you know of someone named Fleming Brown? She said, yeah, he's teaching here tomorrow night. And then I said, well, how many banjos does he have? <laughs> She said, 15. I said, well, sign me up. And I saw him next night. And it was the greatest thing I'd ever heard. He just flooded the room with this big baritone voice. And he had this Paramount banjo, which I have now. And he gave me before he died. And in it is a little plate attached in it, screwed in it. But the motto of the Paramount banjo, piano volume, harp quality tone. That was Fleming. The archives will be taking a break for the next couple of weeks, but we return with a new episode of Second Half on January 10th, 2019, with more stories from Old Town School folks. The interviews you just heard were gathered over the past couple of years in partnership with StoryCorps. The music you heard comes from the audio archive of the school's resource center. See the episode description for detailed notes. Do you have an Old Town School story you'd like to tell from the 909 West Armitage School or otherwise? Go to oldtownschool.org slash StoryCorps to learn how to share them with us. That's spelled S-T-O-R-Y-C-O-R-P-S. Feel free to post them on the Old Town School Archives Facebook page, too. You can listen to this podcast by subscribing on iTunes, streaming on SoundCloud, or just by Googling Old Town School Archives Podcast. Until next year, I'm your host, Marie Valindo. Thank you for listening. I don't